Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome on Curtis James. Curtis is the head superintendent at the Old Elm Club in Chicago, uh, one of the premier golf courses in the country and the Chicago area. Definitely one of the least known great courses uh, in this country. It's a Harry Colt, Donald Ross design, and Curtis is has been an influential force in the Chicago superintendent industry. Um, he is credited by his peers largely for kind of changing the tides of how courses are maintained in the area. Uh, so he's done a great job at Old Elm kind of changing the the culture and the conditioning of the, of the club and, and making it one of the premier courses in the country. So without further ado, here is Curtis James. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Brian Moore was on this pod, and uh, he told me he told us like the pet peeve. His pet peeve was people that drop the flag, you know, from like they don't place it down. He's like, oh. you know, you could you could just place it down. You know, we spend a lot of time, and it's funny because like I've had like probably a dozen or two dozen people tell me that they listen to that and they've like it's completely changed the way they put the flag down. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. On the greens. Yeah. Taking the flag out. Yeah. And the people just, you know what it. my pet peeve is people that pull the ball out with their putter or their wedge out of the cup yeah. drives me crazy. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? They just mangle the cup, but yeah. they'll pick it out with their putter or they'll pick it out with a wedge. If they chipped it close or, you know, it's, I just think, what are you doing? It's funny because golfers complain about the cup so much. Yeah, and they don't even know what they're talking about. They're like, it's crowned. You know, that's why it didn't go in. <laughs> this guy cut the cup wrong. Oh, yeah. But then they're so quick to, to wedge or putter or remove it. Uh, yeah, and then they don't fix their ball marks either. You got that. How do you feel about the end of the putter device? Oh, you got to be a hundred to ha be able to have that. You got to hit the the century mark if you got the little suction cup on the end of the putter. <laughs> it's uh, you got to be, be you got to be ninety plus. It's better than the alternative. Oh, it's better. It's better than sticking the end of the putter itself and chopping up the cup that's apparently crowned because he missed his putt. You know, it's my fault. It's always it's, our fault. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I don't ever understand. You have golf professionals. They never blame the golf professional for shooting 100. It's always the superintendent's fault. But the golf pro will give the guy a lesson 10 times. He won't get any better. So how can it possibly be the superintendent's fault? I, I don't ever get it. I'm like, go in the golf shop and try to get your game better. Learn some new shots. It's... uh. <laughs> they got... <laughs> am I, golfers am, always I, am gotta, I wrong? Golfers always have to blame somebody. So it's the hardest thing in the world is pointing the finger at yourself. 
So, <clears throat> how'd you get into uh, turf? When, when did you when did you know that you wanted <clears throat> to have you know kind of work at a golf course? I grew up in a very small town of three thousand people in Central Ohio, but we had two public golf courses. <laughs> believe it or not. And I decided to, between eighth grade and ninth grade, join the high school golf team. And part of the deal was you to, pl- to practice golf at one of the courses is you had to work 20 or 40 hours for the guy that owned the golf course. So I started doing that, and the owner needed some extra help, so he kept me on for the summer as a job. I think it was $3 an hour, but you got all the golf you wanted to play and carts and hot dogs and <laughs> Pepsi that you could have in the, in the shop there. It's a smart business. Owner. And then, then the we labor. would night water, like everybody's always said, oh, have you ever night watered? And you'd go out and put the quick couplers in and run it on the fairways and you'd be up all night and then you'd go cut greens in the morning with a triplex and cup cutter and national the tees and... That's how I got started and just really enjoyed being outside more than anything and thought that was the way all golf course jobs were. It was the best job I ever had. <laughs> Little did I know that would be my funnest job and then it'd all go downhill after that. You'd have to get serious and really work. So. I, I think back to caddying, I, like a lot of times I'm always like, God, I wish I could just go back to when I just caddied, you know, you wake up, you got I, I, no responsibility. I tell people that story and I'm like, that was the best job I ever had was between 14 and 18 years old working at Wyandotte Golf Course in Centerburg, Ohio, night watering. And we would work from like 630 in the morning till 1230. And then we'd play in all the pot games because there was a lot of golf. It was a popular golf course. And, and I just thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread and Little did I, you know, at the time I thought, oh man, I'm, I could do this the rest of my life, just work at work at Wyandotte. And, but then I went to school and moved around quite a bit and learned that the Wyandotte days were over. And if you wanted to, you know, do well or make any money at the business, you had to, you had to get kind of serious and took a lot of the fun. I, you know, I never played golf after that, really. Those were the last days of my golf for the most part, you know because just never had time to play golf once you got started doing all the other stuff. So you you go to school, and then where'd you get kind of your start in the golf industry from, you know, a turf side uh, post-graduation? I was going to school at the uh, two-year program, ATI, Ohio State, and I started uh, an internship at Chagrin Valley Country Club in Cleveland. And Joe Volk, at the time who was a longtime superintendent there just retired a couple years ago uh he kind of took me under his wing and i did my internship and he liked my work ethic and invited me back to being an assistant so you know i graduated school and i had an assistant's job and i liked living in cleveland so i i went back and i worked there for three or four years and we never had any employees so you really you know, you worked all the time and you learned how to work and, and it was a nice, you know, middle of the road country club. And, and, uh, he, he taught you how to stretch a dollar, you know, we never had you know, it wasn't a big budget club and, uh, 
but we did a lot ourselves and you know he really taught me how to work and then then i ended up moving out of there to bel air and working for brian sullivan and i really you know we did a lot of construction that's when i really started getting going in my career was that was the game changer moving out to california and working for him i imagine working at that at a club with a lower budget when you move up into like a into a bel air where the budget's so much bigger it's like a a shock but also that upbringing of a a small budget has to help so much yeah i i think you know that was some of the greatest things i had um was you know being at a public course uh i did a growing in high school at beaver creek uh it was a city course um i worked at another little mom and pops kind of little country club in Gahanna one season there in high school and and they you know we had a budget of it was a private club but we had a budget of three hundred thousand dollars so you know you you spray hock the greens by yourself you know you drove the tractor and you 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 were your own hose guy and you just learned how to make it work on nothing and then when you get to a club that has the resources you understand how important it is, even though you have the money, is to still spend it wisely and still stretch it to get twice as much done, even at a big club. And, you know, it's not like you got a free pass here and we're going to give you all this money, you know, hire it out. Right? We still would do a lot of the stuff ourselves. Even at Bel Air, we, were, we would strip and prep and lay all the fairways ourselves. you know we never contracted anything out but we had the money to do it but we just think all superintendents feel a responsibility to to try to you know be you know pretend it's their own money and be a good steward of the club's money and try to stretch as I, I think that's just you know we're dirt farmers and when that's ingrained in us you know is doesn't matter if you have 300,000 or 3 million you're going to spend that money the same and get as much as you possibly can out of it. Now it's, it's nice. Don't get me wrong. It's nice to have those extra funds in case you make mistakes and everything. When you're at those smaller ones, you really can't afford to make any of those kind of mistakes. Can't afford to go out and spray. And then it rains an hour later, you know, you have that happen to you when you're at a big club and how we got to get the spray out. And then it rains. You're like, ah, I just wasted, you know, five grand and, it doesn't bother you near as much as when you're at those kind of smaller clubs. But I think all in all, no matter where you're at, you're going to take that money and try to get as much out of it as you can, even though you might have a surplus of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at Bel Air, you were doing a lot of construction and just knowing you from getting to know you here, I can tell that working and and doing projects on a golf course is that uh, is a passion of yours like the thing you love most is that where you kind of developed that that passion and and love for the construction and the project work at a golf course yeah i mean i was i was young there i mean i think i was 22 years old and brian sullivan did a great job of just opening your eyes and taking the blinders off and letting you see the big picture there was so much more than just cutting grass and and how to organize trucks and especially in a place like bel air it's it's very difficult with all the neighbors and the small roads and you just really had to be on your a game to get things done there and he 
you know, he gave me enough rope to to go out and pretty much run the things by yourself. And, you know, he let you make mistakes, but he was he was just really he was the guy that that, you know, Joe taught me how to work. But Brian taught me how to think outside the box. And and he's the one that really changed my life. That move changed my life. And that's when I decided that was really that kind of level of maintaining turf and doing projects and everything that was something that i really enjoyed and he let me you know to his credit he let he let his assistants do a lot of it and he you know he watched us but he let you cut your teeth and make mistakes and and he was hard on us but he was always fair and that was kind of what my you know all the guys i've worked for but you try to take the best that you know from each one of them put it together in your own recipe but that always you know tough but fair mentality has kind of always been pretty good for me and worked for me with my guys is you know i'll push them to the limit but i'll be the first one to thank them and say good job and you know take them to lunch or whatever to you know you know give them give them a half day off or working hard that week you know just yeah just take care of your people. You know, he always he always gave us, you know, working in California, work 365 days a year. So he'd always give us a day and a half, two days off every week, man, mandated it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I also started to, you know, work for several guys where you work, you know, 90 days in a row without a day off. And you just, you start making mistakes. It isn't that you can't do it, but you just get tired and you start making mistakes and learning from brian i always try to get my guys you know every other weekend off i got 12 good days of you that you're going to work you know a lot but that break they get and then they come back they're just that much better and then they don't make mistakes you know yeah um i imagine managing people is like a big part of the superintendent like as you grow and you get more responsibility that's probably one of the toughest things to you know uh adjust and learn right yeah, for sure. I mean, because you just, in our profession, there's just such a variety of different types of cultures and people that work for you. You know, you have you have retired guys, you have Hispanic, Dominican, you know, Cubans, whatever, you get some of that workforce. You have young kids out of high school or, you know, college kids and, and you know, you have you just have a variety of people from all different places. So each person is totally different and you got to learn them and you know, you got to know what they do good and you try to put them together with the right people to get the job done. So managing people and motivating them, you know, we're not, now everybody likes to work outside, but we're not a, you know, a high paying for a guy that just goes out and cuts greens, it's not it's not something you're gonna <laughs> you're not gonna get wealthy off of. So you got to find ways to keep the guys interested, motivated, and uh, and I think giving them some time off and and trying to be a human being to them and and managing them as a person instead of as a laborer is a way that we have been able to keep guys coming back year in and year out. And then try to get these young interns to get motivated and move on. And so we've been pretty successful with that, you know, then. And but, uh, yeah, I mean, Brian was really the one that got me out there. And then I got a chance. He let me go and do the uh, 
I was a construction superintendent for a year out in Palm Desert and Palm Springs, but I also came back and built the, uh, with Peerless Golf, built the practice facility at Bel Air. That was mm-hmm. my first big project as a construction superintendent. So, you know, I got I got the best of both worlds out there. The agronomy, doing a, doing a big old course like that, re- restoring, and then also taking a hiatus and being a construction superintendent and and growing in golf courses from start to finish and doing practice facilities and bunker work and so it really rounded out my resume at a young age as you know learned how to grow grass but also learned how to build usga greens and bunkers and tees and Mm -hmm. and do it the right way too was lucky to work with some really good shapers and and uh guys that were with landscapes unlimited for a long time that just broke off and had a little niche down there in Palm Springs. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that rounded me out to, to kind of have that passion to do that stuff. And I just always thought, you know, I, I think our, my guys, they like a change of pace in mowing greens and projects is a way for them to, you know, you want to yeah. keep them motivated. It's giving them something <clears throat> else to do than mowing greens every day. Yes. Know? It's like, uh, just changing up some monotony change, the, yeah, you exactly. know, exactly. And it's exciting. And it's stuff that you can see, like, as opposed to just cutting grass, like I imagine you cut the grass and you can see it's shorter, but seeing the work day in, day out and feeling the impact of like adding a bunker or something like that, there's, there's more of a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. It's, it's, a. Uh it's a visual gratification, you know, it's aesthetically pleasing and gratifying when you build a bunker or you change a hole or you, you know, you redo greens or whatever. You can see all that and, you know, planting shrubs and doing the landscape around the clubhouse. These guys like that cause they see it, you know, mm-hmm. that, Hey, I did that, you know, and, and, that's cool for these guys to feel that because cutting, you know, you can cut straight lines, but who cares about that? Yeah. Hey, I, I just want the grass cut. I don't care if they cut it in a circle, you know, <laughs> just get it done. Yeah. And these guys don't, these guys, you know, they'll, they'll be like, Oh, I cut the straightest lines, but that doesn't do something like redoing 12 green and sodding it from your own nursery that you grew the whole summer and you go and you cut the sod you haul it over there you lay it you level it out you do all that stuff and then you come back in a couple months you're like man that greens you know they that's stuff my my guys take a lot of pride in and that and they they enjoy doing projects Mm -hmm. you know it's they know they're in for it's hard it takes the hours but they're always it's a change of pace and uh I think that's part of the way we've been able to keep them motivated too and not, you know, get that monotony boredom of maintaining grass. It's like aerification. It's a pain in the it's a pain in the rear, but you know what? It's a change. Yeah. You know, hey, let's go Swiss cheese this place and okay, we don't have to cut today. You know, it's just it seems to kind of work that way. <laughs> so a- after Bel Air, you went to Wingfoot then? After Bel Air, I spent a year with Peerless Golf. Um, Like I said, we did the range at Bel Air, and then we did La Quinta Country Club and some work at uh, Traditions and um, the Reserve and Vintage Club down there in Palm Springs. And I loved the construction, but I hated the traveling all over the place Mm -hmm. and... and, um, Brian actually had called me and 
you know, Brian had interviewed for Wingfoot, and we thought we were going to go to Wingfoot, and and then Mr. Latchaw got the uh, Paul got the job at Wingfoot, and Paul was out at Riviera at the time, so he, Brian and Paul had a you know relationship, and he had called Brian and said, you know, I need some guys up at Wingfoot, and um, Brian called me, he's like, you gotta you gotta go work for Paul up at Wingfoot, and so I did. You know, I packed up, and it was closer to home. You know, my family's still based in central Ohio. It's kind of tough out. Talk about a, so you go central Ohio to Los Angeles. Yeah. To Palm Palm Springs. Yep. To New York City. Mamaroneck. To Mamaroneck, New York. (laughs) Not knowing what the hell I'm getting into. (laughs) Um, So I went and worked, you know, and, and, you know, I had, you knew what, Paul was, you know, he was probably one of the more respected guys in the business at the time, well-known. And I, you know, I didn't even see the place. I just over the phone kind of told him I'm coming, I'll be there, you know, I'll, I'll do it. And shit, boy, I tell you, not that I don't love the course or anything, but it's just a hard area to live up there. If you don't make any, you know, we didn't make any money. I mean, we, a couple of us got an old hundred year old house, the upstairs, you know, and split the, and it was expensive. I mean, we didn't have any money. You know, we, we ate hot dogs and drank Budweiser. That was our big dinner. You know, I mean, we scrounged some change left after rent and we worked a hundred hours a week there. I mean, it was it was like robots. You know, you got up at four and you got the spray hawks out and you sprayed all the time. I mean, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a union crew there, and that was difficult because you know there was eight or ten of us AITs and assistants and interns that would do all the walking and raking of the bunkers while the union crew just sat. They didn't do anything except a, a writing job. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it was, you know, and we accepted that. And you either, you either bitch about it or you you use it as motivation. And I took I took that as, hey, I'm not going to let those guys get me down and tried to motivate the other guys that were, we were all in this business to move on, you know. And, I mean, we cut a couple thousand trees down, ground all the stumps ourselves. I mean, there was a pile of mulch so high at Wingfoot that it about catch on fire. We had to put a sprinkler on it. And, you know, it was just crazy there. Uh, It was the preparation to get it ready for the amateur in the open. And there was good 10 guys that put in a lot of time of sweat equity there that you'll never forget. You know, we'll never forget that. We called it the foot. It was there was no fun about it, but we're all better for it. You yeah. know, what, yeah. um, how, what years were you there for? Just, I was just there a year, 2000 to 2001. Mm-hmm. And, um, Paul had come to me and there were some opportunities in New York there for superintendents jobs, or he said, you go back home to Cleveland if you want and work for Matt Schaefer at country. He's looking for a guy. And, I had talked to Matt along the way, met Matt through a friend of mine and, and, you know, the opportunity to get back to Ohio and be close to my family and that, that really tripped my trigger and I was still young at the time, you yeah. know, I was still only like 24 years old, but I'd been to California, New York, Palm yeah. Springs 
Had and, could, uh, you know, pretty good resume getting started. Couple good clubs. Think about the architectural lineage. You had a Thomas, you had a Tillinghast, and then Country of Flynn. Yeah. So you, is, how did you, you know, start to get into architecture and start to, you know, understand how to get, you know, maintenance and construction and, but then, you know, the kind of the, those are so hingent on, I, you know, architecture being alive. Yeah, I think at my stage of my career back then in the the late 90s, early 2000s, like I look at all these younger guys that are soups now, they're so much in tune to the architecture than my generation was at our, you know. Yeah. I think I know a lot now about because where I've worked and I've engulfed myself into it because it's just something I enjoy. But I could, you know, like you talk about Brian Moore and Brian Palmer, Scott Bordner, um, all these younger guys that are, they just, that had worked at, started off at great clubs, you know, across, across the country. You know, Drew Barnett, you know, these guys worked at great clubs where they were restoring all these historical architecture and everything back. So I think this generation is a lot more in tune than what might, you know, we were still kind of like mm-hmm. maintain the grass. Okay. This is the architect. You're going to have Tom Fazio come in and fix the golf course up, yeah. you know? And it was much more of like a green. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a golden age of architecture yeah. by any means. There wasn't the Gil Hans, Tom Dokes. They were just, they were just learning under Pete Dye. And there wasn't anybody back then that was doing that rugged, you know, when I was at Bel Air, I met Kyle Phillips, and he was the first one, and he was doing Kings Barnes, mm-hmm. and he was the first one that I met that really had that kind of rugged, natural mindset, the lay of the land, put it in. Now, that's not to say that that Tom Fazio didn't do a great job at Bel Air at the time, but it was more of a more of a green and possibly prettier golf courses at the time. So my experience, you know, when I went to Wingfoot, I knew Wingfoot was pretty special because I had played a lot of golf and it was a hard golf course. You know, those green complexes are diabolical. So I, but I never got to, you know, I played twice when I was there in a year because we just never had the opportunity. We worked. hundred hour week. Those guys, you know, those, and that, that's the guys I'd worked for, they never let you hardly play. Now, Brian liked to play, and he would encourage you to play, but Paul wasn't going to let you play, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so when, when I went back to country, you know, I think Matt was, Matt Schaefer was one that was okay. You know, he was a trailblazer for down and brown, mm-hmm. you know, um, try to push that plant right on the edge and we killed a lot of grass i mean i'm not gonna you know he'll say the same thing and and matt was good because he let you push it and you screw up and you have to go fix it you have to go plug some parts of the greens and but man he just never let you water and he had i think he had the grasp on the cultural part of it is the way that hundred years ago, the golden age of architecture, the Flynn's and, and all those guys, the Thomases and McKenzie and Colt, whatever you want to say, those guys wanted it hard and fast and just play the ground game. Because like you said, you had the hickory clubs, you had the, you know, the, the balls 
that didn't go very far and you played the ground game and it's just that much better. And that's the way they designed the golf courses. You know, it wasn't fly it to the green and hit it as far as you can. What's what's ironic is it's that game is is now like the lady and and senior player game whereas the lower trajectory players play the game that was like the great golden age players game. Absolutely. You know. And so when I I went to country and it was a William Flynn, and, and it was good. It was good. It wasn't something that you were going to walk and remember every hole, you know? And I'm working for Matt for a couple years there, and he came to me and said, uh, you got a decision-making. You can go to the Marion or you can stay at country. And he said, you know, once you have the opportunity to go to Marion with me. And, and uh, when he got the Marion job, he's like, you know, he knew I was, you know, I was really starting to get into the architecture kind of with him because just the way he maintained the course, I started understanding why the architects did what they did. Mm -hmm. And it's from a cultural program too, you know. You could have the greatest old school golf course and if it's wet and soft, it it doesn't do it justice. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I got to Marion, that's when I was just like, holy cow, you know, I... I walked that place the first time and and I was just like now this is this is architecture you know even though Bel Air and when I went out to Bel Air and I got a, when I did my interview I was like well man I've never seen a place like this you know mm-hmm. Bel Air was breathtaking and uh you know it just had so much character I I still to this day out of all the places I've worked at it's it's right up there with number one that I worked at because it just had so much uniqueness and character and how he routed it through the canyons and it was genius, you know, and and that's why you know Bel Air is really special. And but when I got to Marion, it was just it's just pure golf, yeah. You know, not the members were all about the club. You got the wickers, you got you got the you know the white faces of Marion. You know, Matt and I got there and, and we just, we kind of did all the grass lines and kind of let the fescue and whatever Kentucky 31 girl, you know, just had the gunge rough, you know, mm-hmm. and we gave, you know, just with those grass lines, we made the golf course just a totally different, and then we turned the water off and <clears throat> it was brown and rolling and fast. And then if you really hit a bad shot, you were penalized. To me, it seems like... A- and I don't want this to sound like a stereotype, but so many supers get hung up like their job is to grow grass. And because of that, they're very <clears throat> cautious with the grass, with the with the watering and, you know, making sure it's lush rather than going the other end of the spectrum and, and pushing it a little yeah. to get the playing. You know, where's the how do you come up with the kind of line? Yeah, the happy median line. So you're talking yeah. about, you know. It it's a lot of it has to do with your board and your membership. You know, some clubs and boards and membership, that's what they want. Mm-hmm. And as a superintendent, you kind of got to give them that. But sometimes if you break the mold and go into a club and say, let me let me try this, you know, let me let me show you what I can do, what I think. You know, you're going to get more roll. You're going to have a lot more different shot values by just drying up the place. And I'm not saying kill the place. You don't have to kill the place. I mean, 
there's there's certain times a year where you can get away with a lot more than you know like like right now you know you get you get in the end of august september you can ride a little bit harder and you know the nights get cooler and you can come you know you play the weather you know mother nature has a big part in how your condition in a golf course um and you got micro environments on the golf course and all that there you know there's a fine line that and i think i think guys like yourself and and people that are into golf that are in the supportive movement of restoring the golf and all the architects have done a good job of hey we're going to store these golf courses but we want your superintendent to get on board with us is let's get this little brown and dirty boys you know and let's see where we can take this and it helps the architecture people you know it takes members you have to educate and you have to you have to be on the ground with them and explaining exactly what you're doing and once you educate them and they start to see the difference in the playability more than likely they're going to get on board with that yeah and they start to get it i think that's like the and i think that's what's happened in chicago you know i think that there's been a lot of there's a lot of good superintendents and there's a lot of good architecture in chicago i think these architects have come in to try to restore these golf courses back to the original designs but they've also said hey let's let's firm this place up a little bit Mm -hmm. and and I think as long as the architects and the superintendent are explaining that to the boards and, and being communicative and educational to the membership, I think they start to buy in and then they start to enjoy it more, you yeah. know. But I think it's a process. It's got to be a process. There's still going to be clubs out there that want it that want it green. And it's not necessarily have to be soft. You can keep it green and keep it firm. But they just they don't want to see any brown whatsoever. Yeah. And, and if that's what... And, you know, in the eighties, eighties and nineties, that's what it was. I mean, that was, that was what it was for the most part, probably 90% of it was like that, but you had a few guys, um, you had a few guys like Matt and Dick Bader and Pat Lucas and, you know, some guys that were, you know, the guy at Huntington Valley in Pennsylvania, that guy's extreme, you know, he really pushes it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Scott, was it Anderson, Scott Anderson? I can't remember so. his name, but that guy's been outside the box for a long time and they love him there for it. You know, they, he's, he's got that membership to buy in that we're, we're going to spit on these fairways or, you know. So <clears throat> when you came to Chicago, it, it, you know, it was a much different culture of conditions. And I think in speaking to all your peers, the most peers, you know, consider you as the, guy that started the movement towards, you know, firmer, faster, less trees. Um, I, I lo- there's a, there's something uh, on one of my Tom Doak podcasts, he talks about how in Chicago in the nineties, everybody had the Medina effect because they squeezed in the, the necks of greens and there'd be rough, you know, for five yards between bunkers because yeah. that's what Medina did. And everybody did that. And it's almost like, what you've created is like, well, this is what old Elm does. So this is what everybody's doing. Talk about a little bit about, you know, kind of what you came into at old Elm and then how you've been able to change the culture over the, a number of years. 
Well, thank you for that. That's a pretty nice compliment from peers and everything. But uh, when I got to Old Elm, I just... <laughs> I knew it could be really good. I just didn't know how good until I engulfed myself in all the architecture. And I don't even think Old Elm knew it was a cult when I got here. You know, everybody had said it was a Donald Ross. And then I just got into the archives and started looking at everything. And I'm like, guys, you know, we got one of the only two cult courses in the United States. And I mean, these were conversations I had with the board. And I'm like, this is this is something we can hang our hat on. This is something that can bring old Elm. Not that we care about ratings or anything like that, but it's it's something besides the fact that it was an exclusive men's club um it's like a uniqueness and finding finding the you know kind of the character and the uniqueness of each course because that's the beauty of golf courses and architecture is every course is so unique from the other one that's right that's right and some are better than others but any superintendent that goes to his own place and can make that unique or you know find that diamond in the rough character or feature that's out there i mean it, it, it you know you could go to a, you know it's like going up to lake geneva and he has all those little hershey drops and you know he's got a double green and and you know he's just got some quirky cool things and he found them and he and rediscovered them you know um i came to old elm and and it was it was kind of a combination of i need to get rid of some trees first of all just to grow some freaking grass you know i mean it was like and it was like at windstone i went to windstone it was only you know it was built in 89 or whatever and we're mowing teas with cottonwood roots and the mower had shaved them down so much that you could just mow over the roots you know so it started at windstone i went to windstone and blasted a thousand trees out of there just to grow grass you know and so that mindset came over here and and the great thing about being at old elm is that my gm kevin was 150 percent behind me and and he was all supportive and and really led the way for me he you know the we really kind of really do work like a golf club should here is that kevin brett and jason they deal with the members up there. They're they're my communication piece. I'm kind of behind the scenes doing the dirty work. They're you know they're supposed to be polished, and I'm not always politically correct, so <laughs> it's probably a good thing that they deal with the members, and I just go and do what they tell me to do. Um, but we got on board as a team and explained to the board what we wanted to do. We brought out the original plan think old elms probably got one of the best archives of original drawings and everything so it actually kind of made it pretty simple to say this is what we're going to do this is what colt did we're going to go with this because you know we we think colt's one of the you know the most prominent golf architect uh, especially overseas he's the man he's the man overseas that's the funny thing i mean you might talk about rayner and mckenzie and mcdonald here Cold is Jesus over there. That's you know, the, that's the funny thing is like in America he did so little work, but 
if you look abroad, like the way he's regarded in, in Europe and in the UK, and then you look at some of the clubs and, and like he got called in to talk to at Pine Valley, like to consult at Pine Valley. Like you have the greatest architects in American golf working at Pine Valley and they, you know, bring in cult. Yeah. You know, he put together, he made Royal County down what it is. Like it was a mess before he got, you know, and, and just like, I think his, his, his work goes so under the radar in America and they, and people don't understand. People just like, don't know. Yeah. Cause like, not very many people have gone over and played his courses over there. That was a great thing. My, I'm, I was here a year or two, and uh, Papadakis set up a trip for us to go to Europe, England, and that was that was my game changer. That's where I knew what I had to do when I came back after I went and played all you know Sunningdale, Swinley, you know Rye. There was just such you know Royal St George, St George's Hill. I mean, I got to play so many awesome golf courses there. But it was just so natural and rugged, mm-hmm. and it was such a you know Colt was there wasn't any templates. Yeah. For I mean, you could every course looks different. There's very few courses that have the same type of hole. I mean, he's got you go to Rye and and Royal St George's. It's it's links, it's pot bunkers deep, and then you go to Swinley and it's just like torn bunker faces, heather. I mean, he just took the natural environment and the plant material and made his golf courses. His greens aren't big and bold by any means, you know, that he doesn't need it. I mean, they're so, I mean, I can take you out here at Old Elm to number three and be like, this could be one of my favorite greens I've ever worked on. And you'll be like, you look at the tee and you're like, oh, it's not much. Like number 11 is the sneakiest green in Chicago, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's flat. And that's that's what I think's really cool about him. Not that I don't, you know, go to Chicago golf and think those are probably the some of the best green complexes in the world. But they're big, they're bold. He was more of kind of a small and dainty kind of guy around the greens, but was just magical the way he blended them in. And he and he wanted it short and tight around the greens, you know, up to the greens. And, uh, you know, it going over there and coming back, it gave, and having the original drawings, it was a pretty bulletproof plan to go to the members and say, well, according to the plan, this is what we're going to do. They can never come back at me with it. Like, yeah. why'd you do that? Why'd you, co-? now I think every superintendent will tell you that there, you're going to have tree hugging members that think you're killing their kids when you cut down trees, but more than likely those trees were not there originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and I both know that forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, there was a movement to not see one hole to the other and have a tree corridor. Uh, probably thanks to USGA. Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, that's it was, and, but you know what? It's just like everything else. Those are tight, you know. Well, that's the thing is, is just it, like hair bands in the eighties and nineties. You know, you had hair bands. That Jay, was a fad. Well, Jay Blasey once I was walking around with him at a course, and he was talking about how, you know, it, it, it 
it coincides with like house architecture. If you go into a house that was built in the 60s, all the rooms are closed off. But if you go into a house now, they're like open floor plans flowing into one another, just like a golf course where, you know, you're playing a tree lined, like you, you're on that hole and you see nobody else. That's where you are. Yep. But now you, you, you know, like the really great restored courses, you get out there and you just see everything unfolding. You see, and I think that's part of the psychology of the design is like, where you're playing one hole and you're looking across at what's, you know, four holes ahead, you're thinking, you're already thinking about, oh man, look at that green. Like, that's going to be, that pin's tough spot. You know, well, I, th- I think it's part of competition too. I think it's good. You know, there was a, you know, back in the day, you play golf as competitive, you know, and it was good to see guys from hole to hole what they were doing and kind of razz them a little bit. I think it's great for golf, you know, and, and, uh, I mean, the perfect example, probably my favorite golf course, one of my top three is Pine Valley. One of the, probably one of the best golf courses in the world. And there wasn't hardly any trees there when it started. Now they're going back to taking a lot of those, you know, Mm -hmm. when I played it, there was a lot of trees and it was almost hole to hole, you know, but it's still unbelievable. Don't get me wrong. But now to be able to sit up there and see that place in the natural landscape. I just, it's so simple, but it's so right. It's, I saw a picture of like that, <coughs> the par three, it's a long par three. Um, I can't remember what hole, but it, you know, it, it's got, it was all tree riddled right around it. And it was like, you're hitting into this, this green that looks, you know, pretty inviting mm-hmm. because of the trees. But then they took all the trees out, exposed all the sand around it, and then the tree looks, or the green looks so small. Oh, yeah. And it makes the shot psychologically so much more difficult, not to mention the wind and the airflow. And, and it had to help with the green's condition. Like, oh, I think, I think all the tree work, the, I tell guys that they ask me, well, how'd you get started? I said, well, I took the green complexes. I said, we've got to get air movement around greens. And at the time we had bent. Uh, a little bit of bent and poa greens and they were fantastic and when we had that winter in 2014 or 2015 a lot of the greens just didn't make it very good and that's when we decided to gas and grass the greens here but i can tell you this with this newer bents you really need full sun almost all day especially in the morning and that's where I tell guys that come to me and ask me, how do you get started? You know, how do I get started with a membership that's just, you know, tough and doesn't want to hear anything about it? And you can do all that Arbor Com stuff and waste waste thousands of dollars on it. Or you can just have common sense and go out there at nine o'clock. And if the shit's in the shade, you know, you need to cut down. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have so many oaks. I mean, it was kind of a joke with our board was guys if if i've got nuts on the greens you know from the acorns uh i think the tree is too close you know and you know what those guys laugh but then they then they chewed on that for a while and he's like man he's right he goes we we got to go clean those nuts off on saturdays and sundays in the fall and it drives us nuts yeah well yeah because the damn tree's too damn close to the green guys you know i don't care if it's 100 years old and it looks great you got to cut it down I mean, it was just it. So it kind of got comical, you so, know. So this, I think that's a great piece of advice. Is I think where so many people, I, and I, I'm like 
guilty of it myself. I remember I was a member of a club and like I started focusing on like the trees I knew I hated the most and they were but they were also the trees that members loved the most because there were controversial ones that were like greatly impacting the intended strategy of the whole but focusing on the functionality and the ones that like are dependent on grass growth. Oh yeah. Like it where you have a a functional thing that people can understand like there's no sun get this tree out so we can grow grass and you can have a better putting surface. That's that's a I I feel like that's where so many people go wrong and in, in this Andy it almost starts more controversy. Andy, you can't putt on dirt, buddy. Yeah. You know. And that I'll go to so many places and they'll have one or two greens that they've got the back left or you know, it's been in the shade all year. And it looks like shit. And it's not superintendent's fault because he's been begging to get that tree down. But Mr. and Mrs. Havishammer, can't cut that down. Oh, God, we can't cut that down. Well, what do you, you want to put on dirt? You know, it. it's not a bad thing to cut a tree down to allow turf to grow. Because, guys, uh, you know, all superintendents I know are agronomists. And their job, they're paid to give extreme high-end quality putting surfaces, rough, fairways, and anything that minimizes their opportunity to succeed at that, you got to get rid of that. You got to get rid of the problem. It's a very simple, you know, cause and effect. And (laughs) we had a tree that left of... 10 green left to seven green and they were probably two of the biggest trees on the golf course. But even when I had POA growing in the shade there, we struggled a little bit with them. They're just, just, you know, tree roots in the greens, you know, and once I, once I got one of those down and they saw the difference within a year, it was like, okay, this kid is actually telling us what we need to know. Okay, we he's got he's got street cred now. Mm-hmm. We get it. So the besides the tree removal, one of the big things that you've done here is like is the short grass expansion, the you know, cutting the rough down to shorter to get the ball to roll. You have a you have a much older membership than most yeah. most clubs. You know, how, how have you been able to effectively expand fairways um, without just killing a budget? Because that's always well, the pushback that yeah, I, I hear. Yeah, that's, it's, um, we, we're lucky we have enough room and we've had about an acre nursery that we pretty much have, you know, taken and flipped once or twice a year for the last six years uh we took fronts of fairways that weren't necessary and flipped and flopped side from here to there um you know our fairways are enormous and they were originally so when i got here just scalping a lot of them down had bent and poe in the rough Mm-hmm. And scalping them down and aerifying and slit seeding and dragon plug poa plugs and verticutting and it's been a it's been a combination of probably four or five things that we've done. Um, 
But my whole goal to the membership was I wanted to restore the golf course for golf for the architectural part of it, but I wanted to restore the golf course for the members because I I I'm trying to lead a movement in making golf fun again. I worked at so many places where it was our goal just to make you shoot a hundred. You know, we wanted to make it as hard and tough as we could, you know, and working at, you know, Wingfoot and Marion, you work at us open court and that's what people expect. You know, I get it, but you come to old down with an older membership. Let's face it. We don't have a whole lot of, we probably got 10 single digit handicappers. Um, so my goal was to come up with an idea that, I could still make it a challenge for those guys that are good, but also make it more playable and enjoyable to the member that was the 15, 20 handicapper that was older. So by expanding all these fairways, lowering the height of cut on the rough, um, just by doing that, I was still that that enabled me to keep the approaches and green banks really tight and the greens firm and fast. And that's what I wanted to keep because they were they were getting to the point where the guys are like, oh, we can't chip, can't putt, blah, blah, blah. So I said, all right, well, I'll cut I'll cut the rough down to a half inch, three quarters of an inch step cut height. And if you miss these enormous fairways. You can take out your hybrid and, you know, these guys still can play golf, but for them to get through three inch rough, they just don't have the strength Mm -hmm. and it's frustrating for them. So my thought was, I want to make the funnest golf course in the United States. How do I do that? And that's what I told Kevin. I said, you know, because Kevin's a a scratch golfer and he's like, oh, you're going to make it too easy. I said, Kev. You don't hardly miss the fairways anyways, okay? Yeah. So if you're in the rough and you get to the green, you still got to chip and put on these diabolical green complexes. That's where it is. The defense of Old Elm is the greens and the surrounds of the greens. That's the magic of it. That's the magic of Old Elm. Is where it, it, what, with the short rough and everything, it's made it so much more negotiable for the average golfer. And it doesn't have anything, any impact on the on the good player because where all the challenge is, exactly. is, is finding the right angles to come into these greens that when they're going firm and fast, it's it's you know, you're 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 just terrified hitting wedges. Well and Andy, that's why taking these you know, people are like, This kid's nuts. You know, he's got seventy five acres of bent and he's taking his fairways out to there's you know, I got like 20 acres of rough now when I used to have close to 50, 60. And, but it's brought all the angles that Colt wanted. Now you understand why Colt did that is because, you know, if I'm far left on number two now where the fairway is, it's, I can actually get it on the green without it rolling off the back or to the left or the right and getting an eight and I can, you know, I can get a four. Because that, that's so hard. You know, it's such a hard green to hit. But all these angles that are, you know, the right of four, you know, these old guys don't want to go up between all those bunkers. They can bail out to the right, and they got a great angle into three green. Mm-hmm. So that that just kind of happened for me is like, and I would take Kev and the members, I'm like, okay, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm taking this fairway all the way out here like it is on the plan. 
but I go, come over here and look at this angle. So if you're good enough to try to get your ball over on this side of the fairway, you're going to get rewarded because you're going to have a way better opportunity, you know, almost double the area to land the ball on the green as if you played it like every Tom, Dick, and Harry and try to go straight up the gut, you know? So I think golfers are, have been, it's all been about the power game mm-hmm. and flying it as far as you can. But you know what? I love that about old Elm is you get on the tee and you feel like you can just hit it where, you know, you yeah. can hit it as hard as you can, but that's fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Should you take your three wood or hit an iron? Should you hit an iron on nine and just skinny it up there and not try to go for the green? Yeah. That's probably the way you want to play it. But guys are going to take their driver, and if you hit the green, great, you're rewarded. But if you miss the green, it's tough up there. Yeah. You know, so trying to bring all the clubs back in the bag to play here, trying, and I can tell you this, the higher handicappers over the last five years have gone down, and my better golfers have gone up. And that's a combination of doing what we've done, adding some tees for seniors and, you know, I've always tried to give and take. If I take away something from you guys, I'm going to try to give you some. I'm going to try to give you a bailout area, you know. So my mindset's kind of screwed up probably and crazy, but I want to make it as I want people to come back here and bring guys back and be like, that's the funnest golf I've played in years. Yeah, That's the funnest place I've played in years. And quite honestly... Don't you want to come out and get a birdie or two instead of a bogey and a triple and a quad? Well, who likes that? I think the best part about it is for the good players is that you can make a ton of birdies, but the double bogey is lurking on any shot because of the greens and the surrounds. You get the wrong spot, you're playing ping pong. You give you give them all this area to hit from. Mm -hmm. You can keep your greens and approaches and banks as tight and fast as you want. Now. That being said, we have been, you know, judicious this year of measuring green speed and trying to find what everybody likes. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we all like to get them super fast, but quite honestly, people just can't. It's, it's not the putting, it's the chipping. It's yeah. the chipping here. They chip a ball on the green and just rolls off. Yeah. And that's that's just because of the firmness and the speed. And, and it's not and fair the, because you hit the, a good shot, you should keep the ball on the green. And the green, the way the greens exactly. are, they're, they're repellers kind well, of. Well, and know. they're army helmets. Yeah. And if you roll off the green, you're not two feet off the green, you're 20, 30 feet off the green. Mm-hmm. So this type of golf course, it's a give take. Okay, I'm going to give you all the fairways and all the rough to hit out of. But I'm, I still want a fair, firm, fast speed up around my greens and, and so, on the greens. So let me ask you a question. Say you're a municipal. You got $200,000 budget a mm-hmm. year. You got your, your shoestring. You're overgrown. You've got trouble areas. How, how are you starting and, and what are you doing to stretch the budget to get you know, being maintaining somewhere like Old Elm for that for that that's unrealistic, and it's got the municipal golfer. You want to get people around the golf course, but you want them to have fun. And I think you know, where do you start if you inherited a situation similar to Old Elm, overgrown, you know, narrow fairways, small greens? 
but with a with a municipal budget. Okay, so you're at a municipality and you got a, a two fifty to four hundred thousand dollar budget. Mm-hmm. So there's you you have to be creative. You know, you have to have a superintendent that's willing to get outside the box and be creative. Uh, you got to determine what your grass type is. You know, if if you have that budget, maybe you have bluegrass fairways or blue rye, blue fescue fairways, and you don't have to spray those very much. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the way you mow it, you know, we mow up and down just because it's fast and it's quick. Um, as far as tree work goes, okay, what kind of trees do I have? What you know, there's a lot of guys out there that are looking for good lumber yeah. and they'll come in and cut trees or you drop them, they'll pick them up. You know, you, you use every resource you can. You got guys that need wood for firewood. You know, it just depends on what area you are. You got to explore every option, turn over every stone that you can that, all right, I want to get rid of some trees. I don't have the budget to do it. Okay. Okay, can you burn there? You know, can can you burn? Because, you know, you can buy a chainsaw and if you got a, you know, or you could rent a skid steer with forks or grappler or whatever for a certain amount of time, you got to be creative. And then, all right, can we, you know, we were at country and we could burn. We dropped, we dropped 50 willows, black willows. (laughs) in a low area and we stack those things on top of each other you know let's just say it was a thousand bucks to cut that tree and haul it away we cut them down and burn them for whatever it costs the chainsaw oil and in the labor you know so a fifty thousand dollar job was probably a two thousand dollar job that we just did and we took the buffaloes and put the diesel on them and burnt the crap out of them you know you got to look at every option you have can i burn do I have people that are, do I have some lumber? Actually, guys will pay you, give you money to come in and cut it down and take. You got black walnut, you got white oak, you know. What do you have? Do you have some good maple? You know, do you have cherry? Guys will come and get that. And okay, if they're not going to pay you or they're not going to do it, if you cut it down, make them come and pick it up, you yeah. know. There's, there's where I would start as far as trees go. I would, I would try to, grow grass at a municipality that's going to give me the best opportunity to give good conditions on a shoestring budget. Um, if you have bent grass at those places and that's what they like, then removing some of those trees is just going to improve the turf quality. It's going to help with air movement, less disease, you know, better root structure, all that garbage. But you know, you got to decide, you know, the, the municipality's got to decide, all right, we got bent grass fairways or we got rye bluegrass fairways. Uh, you know, you spend the money on the greens because that's where it's at. Everybody, nobody's going to talk about fairways or tees. If you got great greens, they're going to think your golf course is fantastic. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. where you score. So spend the money on the greens. Get the greens back out to where they were. Usually those places don't have great irrigations, but municipalities are are okay with capital and infrastructure. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, again, it's an outside the box educational process. Hey, this is, this is what I can give you. And, you know, you take a few holes and you show them what you can do. Mm -hmm. Once, once you give them caviar, they don't want to go back to sardines. 
You know what I mean? People people like good shit. They don't want to yeah. they don't want to eat bad shit. Yeah. You know? Do you want to eat a filet or you want a McDonald's cheeseburger? I mean, they're going to want the steak. You give them a steak on two or three holes, guess what? Those other 15 taste like shit. Yeah. I'm going to go back to those three holes. What's it going to take? What do, what can we do to help you? And then the, and then the, then know, the ball's gonna, rolling. Yeah, the ball's you're gonna, rolling. You're going to that's one of the my biggest gripes with municipal golf is like is the fact that so many people think like, "Oh, this is the way it is and this is the way it, it has to be and we're we're a $25 course and we're always going to be a $25 course." It's like you know, if you do a little bit of work, you can be a $35 course. And then all of a sudden, like, you just bumped your revenue up and, like, and you're going to get people around faster. It's, it's all about rounds, you know. At, for balls. It's, it's, well, that's, I got to tell you, my guys hated looking for balls. Yeah. I'm at a private club. My guys, they got caddies. They hated looking for balls. Yeah. It speeds up rounds. There's yeah. nothing worse than looking for golf balls. No. That's a, maybe the worst part of golf. It, it's it's a guys don't they're expensive guys don't want to lose them yeah. you know that's where the short mow grass speeds up play sp- speeds up rounds it just makes golf a lot more funner i mean if you're 200 yards out and you're in like step cut you feel confident that you can get that ball to the green yeah if you're in three inch four inch rough that shot is impossible puckering your butt you know, you're like, oh, I got no, ch- I'm, you know, I'm just going to try to snug it up there, the approach, because I'm not going to make it there. So you've worked with uh, Drew Rogers and Dave Zinkin here. You know, what, what have been the things that you have really helped with that relationship and made it a success? Uh, they're, they're hands-on, you know, Drew is as good as they come working with soups. You know, he, he listens to superintendents and, I think Dave's, you know, his architectural skills and shaping skills are just extraordinary, you know. Um, But working with those guys, I've known Drew a long time because we did Old Stone together, and that's where I met Drew, and he's he's from Ohio, and so we go way back. But uh, we went out and met Dave out at Bandon when he was doing the short course out there, and just loved the guy and knew he'd be a part of the team. And it was really a team effort. You know, it was um, Kevin and Old Elm getting on board and just kind of letting Dave and uh, Drew do their thing. And <coughs> the luxury they had was I had been a construction superintendent, so my whole staff was, we gave them as many people as they wanted when they were here. And I think that's why it was so successful is we really didn't hire anything out. Um, so we kind of were able to go in the field and just do it and then go back and look at it and change it. And there was never any like drawings or anything written up. We just did everything in the field. And if we liked it, we kept it. And if we didn't, we changed it and made it better. And that's what's really great about that kind of architecture and and working with guys like that is and being able to do it in the field, you know, because we've done all of our stuff here without ever closing. So the members, 
have had construction stuff, but we usually wait till the end of the year and do it in the spring when they're gone. But even even doing the greens, we had temporary greens and the guys could play the course. So all of our work that's been done here, we've never closed the course for one day. Um, so we've done basically a total restoration of a golf course, nuts to bolts without closing. And how many years has it has it been? You know, I got here in 2009 and that's when we started basically the tree work and then got a plan together for new irrigation. The irrigation was 30 years old and it needed to be done. That was the first really wave of getting things done. So when we did the irrigation, that's when we got, that was the first round of trying to bring the fairways out a, a little bit, like to make the bunkers make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time, I never thought they would go for what we have now with the bent everywhere. I just thought, oh, God, these guys will never. <laughs> I go, one, I can't afford to maintain it. Two, they're going to think I'm crazy. So we did one round, and then we did the irrigation where the, the grass lines were, and Drew came out and helped us with that. And and then, you know, a couple years later, it was like, guys, we the bunkers were not good. Yeah. And I said, we need to do the bunkers. But I said, we can't do the bunkers, just strip the sod, yeah. put drainage, put sand in. We need to do what Colt said on the plan, torn bunker faces. Because that's, to me, that's what put Old Elm on the map was, was you know, not only taking the fairways out but changing the bunker complex the aesthetics you know the aesthetics was huge having grown up you know and played this course when i was in high school and and then you know having grown up like in the area like it's funny i was standing on the first tee this year and i looked out and i felt like i was like in england but like the only thing that reminded me that I wasn't was like the same big power lines that I've stared at my whole life, <laughs> like out in the distance. It's like, yeah. if those weren't there, I would have felt like I was in a completely different, you know, part of the country. Than- well, that's because England doesn't have electric, you know, you yeah. got that special outlet. <laughs> you know, I, and I, t- I always say, I'm like, Andy, how much money do you think we have? I'm not going to get those lines buried anytime yeah. soon. But <laughs> you'd, you'd shut down like, I shut, I shut that down. Right. I, I shut that. Yeah. I shut that down right away. But, <laughs> but, and that's, you know, our goal too was to, I wanted you to feel like it's a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted the, the, the speeds and the conditioning to be of the, you know, 2020, 2018, but I want you to come out to Old Elm and be like, God, I, f- I feel like, you know, the coolest thing I've had, really, a couple of our tough old members. Came, and we got those old school ball washers. And they came out and he was like, I haven't seen one of these since my dad and I played here 50 years ago. I feel like I'm playing with my dad. To me, that was one of the coolest compliments i ever got and it was from one of my toughest members grummy grum house and but he was like he you know he's sitting there washing his balls he's like i feel like i'm playing with my dad you know i haven't seen this since i was playing with my dad and that just hit me and then that was when i wanted to get all the little divot buckets back and and 
you know, make the flags old, do our own team. You know, it, it's, yeah. I think Gil said it best is it's about the golfing experience from start to finish. Yeah. It's not just the grass anymore. It's, it's all those little, anywhere where you can pick up a nugget, anywhere where you can get something different than everybody else. You know, you know, you talk about trailblazing that, that to me, our accessories is something that a lot of guys have been like, I mean, I can't tell you how many calls I get. Where did you get that? Where did, how did you do that? You know, from accessory standpoint, but I think it's, it starts, that's part of the experience is like, how can you make your golf course totally unique? Talk about a municipality. You could you could make your own wooden tee markers and make them special with your logo or something. And you can do that cheap. And mm-hmm. it's different and it's unique. It's not just a painted white ball out on the tee. Yeah. You can you can slab some identity. of that lumber and make a natural bench. You got a municipality for free. And that's the thing. It, to market a brand, you need to have a brand and an identity. And that's those little things help build your identity and like you know, it's something that people talk about, you know, it, the more you can get people talking about what you have anywhere on your course or anything about your course is the, the better. You know, it just like it helps you market. You, I, put, I put wooden baskets on my driving range, cool wooden baskets. You thought you thought I hung the moon. You know, these they were like, where'd you get those baskets? But you could go to an apple orchard if you're a municipality and go get old apple baskets or you got to get outside the box. You could go to uh, like a rummage sale probably and get them. You I just saw to... online, our our trash cans are old bourbon barrels. Mm-hmm. I just saw online where a place in Columbus was giving them away for free. Yeah. You know, you, you just got to, you got to be. Uh, creative. You got to be creative and you got to be advantageous. You got to. You got to find all those things. There's, you know, with, I mean, when I started, there wasn't any <laughs> internet, you know, it, you didn't, you couldn't find any of this garbage. Yeah. You know, that's how old I am now, you know, to think about that. That's really my generation's when the internet started mm-hmm. and it's, it's so much easier now because you got access to everything. Yeah. So there's no excuse for not being creative. It's it's you gotta you gotta dig deep and find it yourself to do it so you you talk about municipalities it's all in the eye of the beholder it's whoever the guy's there you know if he's working hard and he's getting his guys working harder than they ever did he's doing his job if he's getting creative and he's making shit out of shiola he's doing his job he's you know there's no excuse you know I've got a great budget. I, you know, it's easy for me to say that stuff, but I started with nothing. And that, to me, that, that was a huge part of my career was those early years not having anything. Yeah. And you just learn to get by with nothing. Yes, I, I visited this place in Philly called Jeffersonville. Mm-hmm. It's a Ross. It's a old course, but it's a municipal. And, you know, I, I spent the morning with the superintendent walking around in the rain and we were just talking and, and he's like, you know, the nice thing is like we've done things and, and like they've worked out. And he's like, now whenever I want to do something, they're all for it because like he's built up the trust. But like they're doing 40,000 rounds a year and it, it, the course is packed. And, and, 
you know, the changes he's made have worked with, you know, he's worked with an architect, but, you know, the small changes that they've made have worked and like they're making money and they're getting yeah. around and the people love it. So it's like, it's a sense of pride for the, for the community too. Well, and I, you know, I'm at a private facility, but that's what I want golf to get back to. I want to get back to what I grew up doing is 18 holes in a cart and a six pack for 30 bucks and play a good golf course that that is stimulating and fun and the guys go out have a great game have a beer at the end of the round and they love it and the leagues come back we've got to grow the game how are we going to grow the game how are you going to grow the game you got to make it fun again you don't nobody wants to go and get beat up we're not good enough even if you're a single-digit handicap, you don't want to go and... Who likes that? You don't want to do that every day. You don't want to do that every day. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's get to overrated, underrated. Wrap this up. So you got to pick overrated, underrated. Okay. On these different topics. I got gotcha. you. Um, we'll start with centerline bunkers. Mm, underrated. Need more of them, I think. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good it's a good aiming point, you know. I mean, what about championship golf? I think it's overrated. I think it's overrated. Yeah. I think it's gotten too goofy. I I I think we're doing championship. Are you talking US Open? Let's if we're talking US Open, I think we've gotten away consistency i think day to day it's just you're not playing the same you need to play same golf course for four days in a row if you want to get a true champion mm-hmm. it's it's going you know get it too fast then we get too slow and then the wind whatever whatever kind of garbage you want to talk about set it up the same the wind comes up that's part of golf it should just be whatever it's got to be consistent i think that's it's all around the problem is the scores it's like whatever they shoot whatever they shoot is whatever they shoot that's i gotta tell you i think people like to see them score good yeah i know some people are like oh i don't want them to break par but you'd love to hear the roars when he's making a birdie you know perfect example Tiger at Bell Reeve gets on a roll. Did you hear? I mean, it's ti- I get it. It's Tiger, but any of those guys that are that are pumping in birdies, Kepka, and people get going. You know, it, it, Old Elm's like a perfect example because like it's a par seventy three, but it in my mind it's like par. This is the problem with pars. Like I I don't look at it as a par seventy three. I look at it as like a par sixty nine. Yeah, and if I play it as par sixty nine, like if I'm thinking about score, like yep. that's as hard of a golf course to par as Absolutely. there is in Chicago. Absolutely. But if you play it as a par seventy three, you you know shooting under par for a scratch player isn't like that big of an achievement. Yeah. And it's like the but if you just flip it to par sixty nine, all of a sudden people would be like, oh, this is this is the hardest golf course in oh, Chicago. Oh sure. You sure. Know? But it's that's the that's the the paradigm of par. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's like if they just made us open courses, like with the reality of the game par 68, I think they need to make it consistent. Yeah. I think they've gotten away too far from that from day to day. Just keep it consistent. I know the weather changes and everything, but 
You got to keep it consistent. And I think people like to see people score. I know there's guys that say, oh, God, they didn't break par. The the crowds ain't getting too excited about that. You know? A, we got to grow the game. Make it fun. Exactly. You know? So, uh, last one. Uh, template holes. Oh, you just had to go there, didn't you? Yeah. Had, had to get one that made you a little uncomfortable. Uh, I think for that architect, it works. Okay. I don't think it's all that great, to be honest with you, the template holes. Um, I think for Rainer, it, it works. But I can tell you this. I can go play certain architects courses and feel like I played one of their other courses Mm -hmm. and I don't like it. I don't like it, you know? Um, but at, at the time that that was happening, I think he was probably outside the box and it made sense, you know? And they're very, they're very cool. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's nothing like a cool punch bowl or Redan or Barrett's, those are all cool. I I like them, but I don't know. I don't know moving forward now if template holes would be such a good idea. Yeah. Um. For him, he was very good at it. He also knew nothing about golf. Exactly. It was all engineering. Thing. It was engineer. It was an engineering. I mean, that was that's as close as an engineer golf course as you can get. Or those template holes. It was more about it's engineering like, and shapes. Golden geometric maximalism. Yes. Geometric shapes and engineering was what he based it. And it made some pretty damn spectacular golf courses. Don't get me wrong. I mean, those golf courses are amazing. I don't know if you could get away with that now. Yeah. I don't think an architect could be strictly templates. No. Like, and I don't, and I, I don't think Rainer was strictly templates. Because like some of his non-template holes are like my favorite holes. I mean, what he did at Shore Acres. Yeah. The fact that that just tells you he wasn't a golfer because yeah. he didn't put anything on the lake, you know, and what he did and take took those ravines and did that routing, that was amazing to me. Mm-hmm. You know, here here you are, got got Lake Michigan. You could put some stuff over there. No, I'm gonna go. It's the flattest, deepest land. I've it's the flattest, most undulated golf course I've ever seen. Yeah. That routing is epic. How he just used he was, the ravine. It was he used genius. One one feature over and over and over again in so many different ways. Right, left, over off yeah. the tee. He, uh, you know, around off the on the on a second shot. I mean, I that guy that was amazing. Yeah. You know, um, but as you know, and Chicago's got some great template holes. I mean, it's you know they've got. That Redan is so good there. Yeah, the greens in um, general. The greens are just diabolical. But they're you know, that leads to big and bold too. Geometric shapes. Yeah. Um, engineering purposes. That's, and he get, and it worked. It worked really well for him. What you touched on with Colt earlier about the subtlety yeah. of his greens, I think that's what gets lost with Rainer is 
everybody stares at like the big bold Redan kicker. Yeah. But they miss like the little internal spines that make those greens yeah. uh, uh, just out of this world. And that's what here has like the subtlety in the small interior stuff are so much more impactful than the big bold things. But the big bold things capture everybody's eye and, and you know, they give they give people Well and and I think, you know, I just played Kingsley mm-hmm. and I think he did an amazing job there. But I, I think these this generation of architects are doing a really good combination of both. Yeah. I really do. I think these guys are inspired by the golden age, but they're they're taking it to another level and they're it, it's so good how they you know back then you didn't tie anything in because it was just built out of the ground you know all these big bold pads and everything you just pushed it up and let it fall off that the old steam blade or whatever everybody con you know con you know kingsley's so good and that if you hit around the green it's going to feed into some of those greens and i think that's great you know yeah. And but he's got some of those greens. If you barely miss one way or the other, you're gone. Ejected. So, e- yeah. <laughs> Hardcore. So I think this generation of architects is really inspired by a hundred years ago by all those guys, but are doing a great combination of some boldness feature wise. And some of them are throwing some of those template holes back in there and and maybe just one and it and it works, you yeah. know. It's, but uh, where it fits, where it fits, yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah, that's it's it's going to be interesting to watch the continued progression. I mean, that's the, one of the coolest things about architecture is you just watch it progress, and you know, there's no right or wrong answer, and no, and, and there's going to be somebody in the next ten, fifteen years that comes along and does something completely different than the way everybody's doing it now, and and that you know there'll be a new trend for um, sure. So, but Curtis, thanks so much for your time. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure and, uh, well, thank you. You're not a social media guy, so nobody can find you that way. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun and, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, buddy. Thank you.